Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. I hope you have been encouraged this morning already as we think of the truths of the gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing like it, nothing like it in this world. Acts 16, verses 19 through 40 is our text for this morning. We will read it as we go in our journey thus far through Acts chapter 16. We have seen God's providence displayed in amazing ways. It was surprisingly manifested through an unexpected separation between Paul and Barnabas. It was beautifully manifested through a highly consequential encounter between Paul and Timothy. It was strangely manifested through closed doors as the Spirit redirected the course of missions. And last week, we saw God's providence powerfully manifested through spiritual conquest, which was illustrated in the conversion of Lydia to Christ and the deliverance of the slave girl from an evil spirit. All of this has led us to this point in the narrative, and it is a very glorious point, although admittedly difficult to absorb, for we are now entering the realm of suffering, suffering. It was the late R.C. Sproul who once said something regarding God's providence as it relates to suffering that I think will resonate with all of us. He said this, and I quote, In theory, it is easy to understand the premise that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But to get this into our bloodstreams is another matter. It is one of the most difficult tasks of the practicing Christian. It involves not only believing in God, but believing God, end quote. And as we are about to see, brothers and sisters, this is something the Apostle Paul and Silas sought to do. So let me give you a framework that I believe is helpful as we think about our passage. The events of Acts chapter 16 are the practical application of the theology of Romans 8. The events of Acts 16 are the practical application of the theology of Romans 8. Paul didn't just write Romans 8 and believed it. He also lived accordingly. To use R.C. Sproul's language, Paul was a man whose spiritual bloodstream was saturated with a supremely high view of God as the one who truly preserves governs and orders all his creatures and all their actions to his own glory. And that's the reason why I love the book of Acts, and so should you. Through this historical narrative, we see truth, but we see it in action, not floating around in the abstract of mere ideas or confined to an air-conditioned room. 
Rather, we see theology displayed in the brutal cold of a prison cell. Show me a man. Show me a man who displays faith and love in the midst of difficulty, trials, and changes, and I will show you a great theologian. With that in mind, here's the main truth for this morning. God's providence is manifested mysteriously, mysteriously, through severe afflictions, severe afflictions. Now, as we enter our passage, let me give you the first thing that I think is important for us to establish, the prophetic roots of the affliction, the prophetic roots of the affliction. Last last Lord's Day, we left off with Paul casting out a demon from a slave girl. And Paul did so in the name of, do you know the name? In the name of Jesus, that's right. But this girl was a great source of revenue for her owners. And they used this girl to make money. So her deliverance from demonic influence did not sit well with them, the owners. As a result, the owners of the girl being completely, completely indifferent to her misery or well-being, the Bible says they became angry with Paul. And in verse 19, we read that they, meaning the owners of the slave girl who was now delivered from demonic influence, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before who? The rulers, the rulers. Why? Why did that happen? Why does any of this happen? Let me say, set this within the prophetic context. Keep one finger on Acts 16, okay, while turning to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, and this is uh, chapter 21. This is on page 880 in the Blue Bibles, if that is what you're using. Let me set this these afflictions in their prophetic context. Luke chapter 21. As you go there, allow me to explain what is happening. At the end of Luke 20, verses 45 through 47, Jesus warned about the scribes. The scribes. These men were representatives of the Jewish religious system, which meant that the warning that Jesus is giving was, in fact, about the entire Jewish system. It had become utterly corrupted. Their corruption was such that these shepherds of Israel even preyed upon widows. Widows. The perfect illustration of this corruption comes in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, with the well known story of the widow. The widow. Remember the story? You can say yes if you do. Yes, wonderful. She was poor. She was very poor. She came to the temple, and what did she do? She gave, she gave everything she had, meaning, notice this, she was a victim of the horrific greed that was now embedded in the Jewish religion, going all the way up to the leaders. The point of that story, then, is not to emphasize the widow's generosity, but to illustrate how horrendous the corruption had become in Israel. They had abandoned God for the sake of riches, but they kept the appearance of godliness primarily by hiding behind the glory of the temple in Jerusalem. 
So what does Jesus say in return to that corruption? We see his response in verses 5 through 9 of Luke 21. Having illustrated the pervasive greed of the shepherds of Israel, Jesus issues his most sobering prophecy. That glorious temple, says Jesus, the very heart of the Jewish religion and the place to which the widow contributed, what will happen to it? It will be utterly destroyed. The point? The entire Jewish system was coming to an end. Not only will the temple be destroyed, but the very city of Jerusalem itself will be made desolate, verses 20 through 24. Before this judgment take place or took place, which it did in the year 70 AD, Jesus said that other things would happen first. What in particular? Look at verses 12 and 13 of Luke 21. But before all this, meaning the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, what will happen? They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and what? Prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Just a few years after Jesus spoke these words, we saw in Acts chapter 4, Peter, along with other disciples, being brought before the high priest. And who was the high priest? A ruler of Israel. Then again, we see that happening in Acts chapter 5. They were questioned, they were threatened, and they were beaten. Later on in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was also brought before the rulers. And what happened to him? He was killed by the Jews. Afterward, great persecution arose against the church as we were told in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 9, the very Jews who at one time loved Saul of Tarsus were now seeking to kill him after he had converted to Christ and preached the gospel where? In a synagogue. In a synagogue. In Acts chapter 12... James, the brother of John, was killed by a ruler. And Peter was thrown in prison by the same ruler. In Acts chapter 14, Paul was stoned nearly to death in Lystra. And in Acts chapter 16, our passage, Paul cast out a demon in the name of? <laughs> a lot of whispering going on. Jesus, I think it's Jesus. Yes, Jesus, he cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. Don't be afraid of saying that. He did. And as a result, what happened to Paul? He's brought before rulers. In other words, what I'm trying to say, in case you're not getting this yet, what I'm trying to say, the events are unfolding precisely as Jesus said they would. So please let us not forget divine providence. None of this is by chance. So let's consider next the great intensity of the afflictions. The great intensity of the afflictions, verses 20 through 24. And when they had brought them, meaning Paul and Silas, to the magistrates, the rulers, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them, Paul and Silas, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Once again, the exact words Jesus said would happen, they are happening to them. They're happening to them. We see at least four forms of affliction. First of all, they were humiliated by being dragged publicly and brought before people in authority. Let me ask you this. How many of us can say that has happened to us? It happened to them. They were brought before people in authority, before rulers. Number two, there was also slander as they were accused of something they didn't do as if they were the cause of the riot. Clearly, remember, the owners of the slave girl were acting simply out of selfish ambition for financial gain. They had no interest either in the message of Paul or the girl's safety. Next form of affliction, they were beaten with rods. How many of us have been beaten with rods for the sake of the gospel? Well, they were. In fact, it says they were given many blows, many blows. Certainly a very painful form of physical torture. All of it leading up to the fourth, the fourth manifestation of affliction, imprisonment in the inner chambers of the prison. But the question of questions is as follows. Where was God in all these afflictions? If we are honest... That's always the question of central concern when we are face-to-face with afflictions of various kinds, and specifically the severe kinds of affliction. Where is God? Where was God while the blows were being inflicted upon their backs? Where was God when they were in the cold and dark prison cell with their feet shackled? Here's the beginning of the answer. God was in the exact same place he was when Joseph was sold into slavery, was falsely accused, and was thrown into prison. In fact, God was in the exact same place he was as Jesus was falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and crucified. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consider what we see next. Next, we see the faithful response. In the afflictions, the faithful response in the afflictions. Verses 25 and 26. They were thrown into the inner chamber of the prison, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This reminded me of Peter. In Acts chapter 12, you can go to Acts chapter 12 if you want. It's the same book. After Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, he arrested Peter and threw him in prison with the intention of also killing him after a few days. Do you remember that story? In the face of the prospect of his own death by the sword, being decapitated. It is amazing what Peter did as he waited. Of course, what do we do with Peter? Let's be honest. What do we do when we think of Peter? We have a tendency to remember the dark side of Peter, don't we? We often remember him for lack of faith. Poor Peter. Poor Peter. 
In the face of the wind and the waves, Peter sank, having walked on water right before, Matthew 14.30. In the face of his own denial of the Lord, Peter wept, having spoken boldly right before, Matthew 26. And that's often what we remember of Peter. He sank, and Peter wept. But I want us to also remember the next phase in Peter's life and how in the face of impending death by beheading, Peter slept. Peter slept, having preached the gospel right before Acts 12, verse 6. Peter was not the sinking man or the weeping man of the gospels anymore. In Acts 12, Peter became the sleeping man because in the face of death, he entrusted his life to God and his providential designs. Likewise, in Acts 16, we see Paul and we see Silas having a little worship service. Where? In a cold prison cell and with their stocks fastened to their feet. They prayed and they sang hymns. You know what these actions are? These are actions of people at rest. The foundations of which is nothing less than God's unshakable, unbreakable, immovable providence. Show me a person. Listen to this. Show me a person whose prayer life and worship life continues in the midst of afflictions, and I will show you a person of faith. So let's ask Peter, Paul, and Silas, brothers, what should we do when afflictions come upon us? To which they will say in one accord, sleep, pray, and worship. You know what this is? Peter sleeping before being beheaded and Paul and Silas praying and worshiping inside the prison cell? That's what it looks like to seek first. What? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will God not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When afflictions encompass you and the cares of life overwhelm you, prompting anxiety to rear its ugly head, remember to pray and remember to worship. Afflictions are never an excuse to neglect these graces. They are, an, in fact, an encouragement to pursue them even more. But as they were praying, and as they were worshiping, the Lord intervened supernaturally through an earthquake, resulting in their immediate release from their bonds and the opening of the prison doors. Why this supernatural occurrence? It was given to indicate that God's purposes cannot be thwarted and that his word is never, never, never bound. It never is. But there's much more in the storehouse of providence that we are here to see. Consider what we see next in this amazing narrative. The providential fruits. The providential fruits from the afflictions. 
We're now entering in verses 27 through 40. Out of these intense afflictions, the Lord brought about three fruits. Magnificent. Three fruits that none of us could have designed. They are exclusively the work of God and God alone. First fruit, first providential fruit, salvation for the jailer and his family. Verses 27 through 34, when the jailer woke, woke and saw that the prison doors were open. Notice what he did. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them, meaning the jailer, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Remember, they were beaten in the backs. And he, the jailer, was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he, the jailer, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Who was the jailer? Well, the jailer was the man entrusted with keeping the prisoners secured inside, as we saw in verses 23 and 24. As such, he knew that under Roman rule, the result of failing to do his job successfully meant sure death. This is precisely what happened to the jailers after Peter was released by the angel. Remember that? Herod came, he interviewed the jailers in, Romans, in, in I'm sorry, Acts 12, and after interviewing them, he had them executed. He had them executed. Notice that no grace was given to those jailers. They died. They died. They, was given, they were given instant death. But so this jailer in Acts 16, having seen the doors of the prison open and assuming that the prisoners had escaped and knowing what would happen to him, meaning certain death, he decided that he would die a less dishonorable death by taking his own life. But Paul, the Bible says, intervened and he told him not to do it. More importantly still is what happened next. The jailer knew those events that took place were not ordinary and that they were connected to Paul and Silas and whatever God they worshipped and served. Having become convinced of this truth, he asked the question of all questions in verse 30. The most important question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, if, if we didn't know how Paul and Silas answered that question, we would think his question was more about being saved from the wrath of men, right? What must I do to be saved from my bosses and their fury? But on that day, his eyes were open to this truth. There is one wrath. There is one wrath with which I must be concerned above all other things. The wrath of God, uh, the God of these men, the wrath of the God who literally caused the earthquake, opened the gates, and on behalf of whom these men are now speaking. How am I saved from him? In that day, the jailer got a glimpse of the true God. My friends, no other question, no other question is weightier than that one. 
How do you escape the wrath to come, the righteous fury of God? The answer is one and one only. We read the answer to that question in verse 31. If you want to escape the wrath of God, then one thing, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your family. The answer is faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Let me give you two reasons. First, what Jesus did. Why Jesus alone? Consider what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins. Romans 3.25 says that God put Jesus on the cross as a propitiation by his blood, which means Jesus fully appeased, he fully satisfied the wrath of God by his death. That is what the word propitiation means, the appeasing of God's wrath. Second, who Jesus is. Notice what Paul calls him, the Lord Jesus The Lord, he is Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus. As Lord, please consider this, Jesus is not an option. He commands all men everywhere to believe in him. On that day, the jailer heard for the first time that salvation was found in a man named Jesus who is also Lord, and he believed. Now, what do we do about his family? Does this mean that he believed and his family automatically believed and were saved? Well, no. How should we read verse 31? I think we should read it like this. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, as well as your family, if they also believe. Verse 32 confirms this because Paul and Silas, they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer, and also to all who were in his house. In verse 33, the jailer and all who were in his house were what? Baptized. From this, we understand that all in the jailer's house were capable of understanding and believing the gospel. Now, we'll, we'll dive into the issue of household baptisms later on when we get to Acts chapter 18. For now, just consider the glory of this moment. A jailer and his family were saved. They became followers of Jesus, thus they were reconciled to God. In fact, verse 34 says that his entire family rejoiced that he had believed in God. Think about it. The jailer went from the hopelessness of thinking about suicide to the joy that is found in Christ. This, my brothers and sisters, is what Jesus does. He makes all things new. On that day, the jailer, along with his family, became a new creation in Christ. The old had passed away. Behold, the new had come. That's the first providential fruit, salvation. It is the work of God. Second, consider this, second fruit of providence, a rebuke to the authorities for injustice. A rebuke to the authorities for injustice. Verses 35 through 39 But when it was day, after the jailer believed and was baptized, the magistrates, the rulers, sent the police, saying, 
let those men go, referring to Paul and Silas, get him out of prison. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, Paul, I have good news. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Great news, right? Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them something very interesting. Wait a minute. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, said Paul. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. They were afraid when they heard that they, meaning Paul and Silas, were Roman citizens. So they came out, they went to the prison, and they apologized to Paul and Silas. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Interesting unfolding of events. Speaking of divine providence, Paul was born in the city of Tarsus which meant he was a Roman citizen by birth, by birth. As such, he had some important rights, not the least of which was the right to a proper trial prior to any sort of punishment, torture, or even prison time. In fact, the punishment for the unjust treatment of a Roman citizen was very severe. So Paul decided to use those rights, which he will do again in chapters 22 and 25. Therefore, the Bible says that Paul declined the invitation to just leave the prison. Instead, he sent word back to the rulers that they were in trouble, that they were in trouble. It was actually unlawful for the rulers to have done what they did to Paul. So Paul sat down and waited, waited for them to come get him out of the prison. You know what this was? Righteous anger. A sanctified tantrum. Verse 38 says that upon hearing that Paul was a Roman citizen, the rulers were afraid. They were afraid. Who would have thought? Christians can appeal to their legal rights as citizens of the nation to which they belong and actually use those rights to their advantage. But I thought Christians are supposed to just keep quiet and take it. Actually, I think this teaches us that if the law of the land is on your side, you use it. You see, my friends, belief in divine providence does not annul your duty to be a responsible citizen to know your rights and to live accordingly. Paul knew what it meant to be a Roman citizen. Paul saw his painful beatings and imprisonment as sufficient cause to do what? To bring some holy fear, holy fear upon those evil rulers. But wait a minute. What about Romans 13? And Paul's own instruction to be subject to the governing authorities. Did Paul forget about his own convictions? Not at all. In fact, this is consistent with Romans 13. Why? The God-intended role of rulers is what? Is for the good of society. The God-intended role of rulers is for the good 
of society. The rulers of Acts 16 acted wickedly. Therefore, Paul, what did he do? He sat down and said, no, I'm not going to let them get away with this. He called them out. Why? Because Paul expected rulers to act justly. But they were Romans. They were Romans. Why would they act justly? Because in the mind of Paul, no human ruler, no human king or president or governor is above the authority of the Lord. Since God places the governing authorities where they are, as Romans 13 says very clearly, then they too are subject to God. Remember this, brothers and sisters. Remember this. There is only one to whom all authority. How much authority? All, there is only one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and also where? On earth. His name is Jesus, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the ruler of kings on earth, as John says in Revelation 1.5. On that day, brothers and sisters, and under God's providence, those wicked rulers received a necessary rebuke. So is there a place for Christians to use their rights and call out rulers when they act wickedly? Even as we do so respectfully and humbly, I believe the answer to be yes. If the evidence is there, we must call them to turn from their evil ways. And here's the third fruit of providence. Here's the third providential fruit. Encouragement to the believers to persevere. Encouragement to the believers to persevere. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison, Paul and Silas, and visited Lydia, remember the lady that just became a convert. And when they had seen the brothers gather in her house, they encouraged them and departed. Very few things are more useful to the encouragement of some than the faithful suffering of others. Now hold that thought because we'll return to that as we enter our conclusion, which we're going to do now. What is our conclusion of all this? Having looked at the passage in front of us, what do we conclude? Here it is. In afflictions, we don't lose heart. In afflictions, we don't lose heart. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13. After explaining to the Christians in Ephesus why he was a prisoner in chains... And he explained why he was there and doing what he does in, in verses 1 through 12. He concludes by telling them this in verse 13 of Ephesians 3. So I ask you, Ephesians, you see me suffering. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is one of the most perplexing statements by Paul, and it prompts a question. How do afflictions relate to glory? How do afflictions relate to glory? Let me finish by giving you a humble attempt at answering that question. Afflictions 
are providential means to a fourfold end. Afflictions are providential means to a fourfold end. First end of afflictions. It is a witness to the world. It is a witness to the world. Listen to this. Nothing draws the attention of the world more than news of people suffering. But what really shocks the world is when people suffer well. Imagine the witness those prisoners received as Paul and Silas sang and prayed inside the prison cell. Verse 25 tells us that the prisoners were listening. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that many more of those prisoners believed because of the testimony given by Paul and Silas? Second end, not only a witness to the world, but the salvation of sinners. Afflictions are used for the salvation of sinners. Now, let me make this clarification. I am not saying that our sufferings are atoning or saving. I'm not saying that. Only the sufferings of Jesus on the cross can save. Only Jesus suffered for our sins and in our place to grant forgiveness of sins. Jesus saves, we don't. But through the sufferings of Paul and Silas, God spread his glory and his name was proclaimed to those that could not have been reached apart from those afflictions. Through beatings and slander and imprisonment, as bad and as evil as those things might be, God saved an entire family. Without those afflictions inflicted on Paul and Silas, the jailer and his family would have remained lost. It would be difficult indeed to reach a jailer if not from inside where? The jail. But let's take this a little further and make it a little more personal, shall we? It would be difficult maybe to reach a nurse or a doctor or a surgeon unless the Lord places you on a hospital bed. It would be difficult to reach those in the furnace of suffering unless the Lord puts you in the furnace itself. Consider the third end that is accomplished, the sanctification of saints. Once again, only the Spirit sanctifies us, but He does so through means. Paul and Silas went straight from their afflictions in the prison cell to encourage the brothers who were with Lydia. Why? Because sometimes the greatest form of encouragement is given when the faithfulness of God has been proven in the midst of afflictions and you have seen it with your own eyes. Turn in your, in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is an important point to be gathered from these events. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, and consider the encouragement that Timothy received by seeing the testimony of Paul during his first missionary journey. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, here's Paul speaking to Timothy, and what does he say to him? You, Timothy, however, 
have followed my teaching, Paul says to Timothy, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then in verse 11, he says this, you, Timothy, have followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and where else? Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Where did Paul and Timothy meet for the first time? Lystra. Lystra. In Lystra, where Paul was stoned nearly to death during his first missionary journey. It is likely Timothy, very young Timothy, actually witnessed the stoning of Paul as he went through Lystra. What impact do you think seeing this had on young Timothy? In Lystra, Timothy saw Paul's conviction, perseverance, patience, and determination to preach the gospel against all odds. So later, when Paul told Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, guess what Timothy thought? Well, Paul certainly did that, and this even through severe afflictions. Therefore, Timothy preached the word. The severe afflictions of Paul and Lystra remained with Timothy for the rest of his life. And when God called Timothy into the ministry, he was ready, come what may, for he was standing on the shoulders of Paul, a man who suffered well. Listen carefully. If you are a Christian, listen carefully, my friends, and I say this with, with love and humility. If you are a Christian, you belong to the body of Christ, which means you never suffer in a vacuum. You never suffer alone. Your individual sufferings have a corporate purpose. So ask yourself today, are my afflictions serving the sanctifying purposes of God for others? You know something that Paul didn't do? He did suffer. He never suffered selfishly. Find out how God can use your afflictions to the sanctification of others and give thanks. Number four, the four end of afflictions is the exaltation of Jesus. What is the ultimate purpose of God's providence? I think the answer lies in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Let's turn there, and we are almost done this morning. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Nine. Most of you know these verses. I'm going to read them to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, meaning his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the purpose of God's providence? God preserves, governs, and orders all his people and all their actions to prepare us to one day stand next to the Lord Jesus as the one who 
as the ones who will have been fully sanctified, who, like their master, have tasted of Christ's afflictions, all of which will one day give way to glory. Therefore, the glory of which Paul spoke in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, is a fourfold glory in that afflictions upon believers and in the hands of the providence of God result in a witness to the world, the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of saints, and our preparation to stand before the Lord so that he might be preempted eminent among all his adoptive brothers and sisters, which he himself bought with his own blood. Therefore, my friends, you might want to say a lot of things about afflictions. You can say they are difficult, and I would say amen. You can say that they are burdensome, and I could say amen. You can even say they're almost too much to bear. I would say like double amen. But what you cannot say is that they are random, that they are senseless, or that they are meaningless. Afflictions were the God-appointed means through which God accomplished all his purposes at Philippi. In fact, through the afflictions of his own son, God accomplished our eternal salvation. And we praise God for this. In 1774, a man by the name of William Cooper wrote a hymn which we are about to sing together in just a few moments. In his hymn, William Cooper said these words, and I quote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower, end quote. The hymn is appropriately called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The purpose of these sermons on Acts 16 has not been to solve all the possible thorny issues involving the doctrine of God's providence. I know better than to even try. My purpose has been much more humble than that. I simply wanted to remind us all that God's providence is not just a doctrine that exists in the abstract of our thoughts. Instead, it is the power that moves history. It is the power that rules the world. This being the case, my brother and sister, in your afflictions, remember to pray, remember to worship, and please don't forget to sleep. God will not fail to sanctify you and use all the things for the good of those who love him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. Thank you for your unending love. Thank you for your grace, your providence, the things that are the anchor, the foundations of all things, for we know that you will never fail. And so as we live life in this constantly changing world, we return return to you, the one who will never change. So we hold on to these promises, we consider your goodness, your providence, and we know that you are working all things together for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.